Hello, this is Thomas Cruz of SAE and Associates. Thanks for tuning in. We are back yet again with another SAE Cares podcast. And for new listeners, welcome. And Cares stands for Clinical and Research Experts. If you've already signed up to receive SAE updates in the behavioral health field, then you probably read our recently released white paper, which tackles the impact of COVID-19 and includes a proposal for service innovation. As a follow-up to that white paper, SAE will continue focusing on specific elements of the document during these podcasts. Our first follow-up podcast featured Fern Zager, and she talked about systems of care in response to COVID-19. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rhonda Bose, who will be discussing the impact of integrated care on COVID-19. This is actually her second SAE Cares podcast appearance. Her first podcast with us was focused on utilizing program evaluation, and I expect that she'll be using that evaluation experience today as well. Just a bit about Dr. Bose. Dr. Bose has implemented numerous innovative and evidence-based treatment programs, including the integration of primary and behavioral health care, implementation of culturally specific behavioral health interventions, program evaluation of system of care transformation grant initiatives, and the development of managed care pilot projects. Her experience working within nonprofit community-based programs and community stakeholders, in addition to her research and program evaluation initiatives, have allowed her to develop expertise in areas of implementation science, transforming systems of care, integrated care, applied program evaluation, and research. First and foremost, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Thomas. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be part of the CARES team. And keeping in tune with how I started the last podcast, how are you doing today, Dr. Bose? all things considered? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing very well today, all, day, all things considered. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, let's just jump right into it, Dr. Bose. How can integrated care impact the outcome, experience, and long-term effects of this pandemic? Well, historically, we first thought that integrated care was primarily between substance abuse treatment and mental health treatment because the research literature indicated a very high percentage of co-occurrence of both of those disorders. Now, this was about 20 years ago, and the healthcare system, both primary care and behavioral health care, had become so fragmented that we were just trying to put behavioral health back together with substance abuse treatment and, and mental health treatment. Then the term later seemed to evolve to be integration between physical or primary health care and behavioral health care because once again, the research literature indicating that the high co-occurrence between illnesses in primary health care and behavioral health care existed. Now, through the research involving social determinants of health within the last 10 years or so, and now the political determinants of health, we're seeing that integrated care really is about integrating economic and social conditions that influence individuals and group differences in their health status with primary and behavioral health care in order to improve those outcomes. We have learned that it's not just about health care, it's about these other drivers or mediators that are really responsible for bringing about better outcomes for those with illnesses. At SAE and, and with the CARES team, we've approached integrated care within a system of care philosophy that Fern talked about mm -hmm. in the last podcast. Right. And, and that this frames our response through a coordinated network of services and supports that are organized to meet the physical, behavioral, social, emotional, educational, 
economic and developmental needs of high risk individuals in the community. Now, what does that mean? Well, by building a system of care, we are talking about systems, plural, not one system. It requires cross system partnerships that where everyone has a common goal of developing a broad array and continuum of services. Within that framework of system of care, we can then use evidence-based practices to address specific vulnerabilities of those at high risk for COVID-19, those discharged for post-COVID-19 recovery, and for family members and individuals who are COVID-19 positive and currently quarantining at home. Those things are the keys to the effectiveness of this model. And to wrap our services around using all of the different systems in the community to meet the needs of the people that we're serving. Most of the vulnerable populations that have been identified through COVID-19 in terms of health disparities and risk for the virus are the same vulnerabilities and communities that many of our provider organizations are focused on. Right. So to not bring in the social determinants of health, primary health care risk in terms of COVID-19 to our behavioral health services platform, we're missing a lot of the drivers that can actually promote better effectiveness of the treatments that we're providing. So whenever we have an emphasis on integrated care, Mm -hmm. inclusive of all of the health risk for COVID-19 and known social determinants of health, We can then use our population databases, our EHRs within our programs to approach care coordination that will ensure that our patients, our consumers receive comprehensive screening and treatment of all of the risks that they may have during this time. Mm -hmm. Not only risk for COVID-19, but also for risk related to depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, substance abuse and misuse during this time as people are isolating at home. We have a tremendous amount of grief happening in particular neighborhoods because of this illness. Due to prolonged isolation, due to the loss of family members and friends, we have a mass of healthcare workers that have been living through a trauma for the last six months. So all of this anxiety, depression, grief, we need to be screening for these things in addition to the physical health uh, needs related to COVID in order to come up with comprehensive service plans. Mm -hmm. If we look at some of the most recent research literature, we're now seeing that even those people that have recovered from COVID are still experiencing uh, symptoms and long-term effects from the illness that, that is impacting cognitive functioning as well as organic symptomatologies. So we need to continue monitoring even those people that have recovered from this to make sure that that behavioral and additional physical health deficits don't increase during that time of recovery. What SAE CARES is uh, proposing is an all health approach Mm -hmm. that advances integrated care across the continuum of risk by providing direct support and management of services. Now we talk about in the white paper that you identified, we talk about two specific models that we think work well within this current pandemic environment. Mm -hmm. The first is critical time intervention or CTI. These are teams that are developed with specification to implement particular evidence-based practice interventions targeted for identifiable risk populations, such 
as within COVID-19, as I said, we have the frontline workers experiencing trauma, stress, disruption in their lives across the population. And the implementation of CTI teams to address early prevention and intervention needs will better the ability to minimize further risk of poor and tragic outcomes among specific vulnerable populations while experiencing extreme stress. Mm-hmm. We, we add to this model of, of identifying those touch points with individuals where we can put a team in place to assist them with their care. We also include the utilization of community health workers, which have been around for a long time. In behavioral health now, oftentimes we use a peer specialist or peer interventionist in an augmented role of a community health worker. The model has been implemented in rural areas to where we have professional shortages uh, in those geographic areas. That's where it has historically been put. But we're seeing more and more community health worker models put in urban areas for at-risk populations. And we have particular at-risk populations as it relates to COVID-19. It, it, you know, particularly for people of color, for people in poverty neighborhoods, in people with, uh, in advanced age, with comorbid primary health care issues, such as obesity, blood pressure, cardiac issues. And, and so we could be putting a community health worker in these neighborhoods, in these communities. And the, the beautiful thing about community health workers is that these folks are normally, are usually indigenous to the community that they're serving. So they know what the barriers are to receiving all types of services, whether it be primary health care, behavioral health care, food, shelter, right. uh, job right. training, all of that. And so they can best help navigate the care coordination that needs to happen within high-risk populations. Uh, and use of, of this uh, community health worker model has demonstrated over time significant impact with comorbid health conditions. Uh, and it also helps organizations to expand their service model and their operations to the field, especially during times whenever people are more reluctant to go to brick and mortar facilities for service. Sure, sure. And as I mentioned, the uh, expectation that you'd be utilizing your evaluation experience, in what ways can evaluation at this time for innovative modeling be a tool for practice management and practice advancement? Well, you know, none of us have lived through times like this before, so we can't use the yeah we can't use the data that we have in our archives for the last 20 years to to really respond to this and you know i have to really congratulate and express my pride of the provider organizations and how quickly they made the pivot to start providing uh Mm -hmm. remote and virtual healthcare services using telehealth platforms absolutely uh it was you know in the many projects that i evaluate it was truly remarkable within weeks Uh, And in some cases, within days, agencies were able to pivot and get their get their providers online and get the word out to consumers of how they could access their services. Mm -hmm. So that that has been remarkable. Now, you know, many agencies have gone to 100 percent remote service. Some have gone to a hybrid and others were not able to at all. And after six months of this, you know, we, we need to start evaluating the effectiveness of these telehealth services. 
you know, most of the providers that I talk to indicate that they know that telehealth or telephonic service is not for everyone. We know that telehealth is, you know, from recent literature, that telehealth has been demonstrated to be better for some people than in-person care. But we don't understand right now for whom it is the most effective and follow ways to incorporate those models and infuse those models into our service delivery system. We don't know, you know, our providers looking at their service data to see what clients are benefiting from telehealth services, that they are remaining engaged, that they're remaining active in treatment, and that they're making behavioral changes that, that were indicated whenever they first started service. Are we tracking who isn't showing up? Who is this not working for? And what alternative service delivery methods can we be putting into place? How quickly are we able to engage people into services using these platforms? You know, one of the things that's happened during this is that a lot of providers have lost many of their referral sources. As healthcare, primary healthcare organizations started shutting down because of COVID, and when hospitals and emergency rooms were converted to, to treating only people with COVID, mm -hmm. referrals into inpatient behavioral health care went down, sure. right? Mm. Um, because the people weren't there to make the referrals. Right. And then whenever the referrals did start coming again, because of social distancing, inpatient facilities were sometimes having to cut their capacities by 50%. That doesn't mean that 50% less people need services. It means now we have a larger gap of, of people that need it to people that are receiving treatment. So we need to be looking at how else can we build access to service. We know from research done at RTI, at the CDC, a lot of the resources that were put into the white paper that SAE sent out, we know that people are experiencing increased levels of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, increased uh, substance use, alcohol and drugs. People are less reluctant to are less likely to go to a medical appointment or to make a medical appointment because of fear of contracting the virus. So we have real access problems of getting into care. As part of program evaluation, we need to figure out where are these people that need care and how can we get it to them? How can we create access? Do we need to have community health workers outposted at food distribution sites or at housing sites or uh, near the schools whenever schools are, are opening up a little bit or through the virtual platforms of schools, through virtual court offerings, court hearings, where, where many people are first identified and referred to treatment. How can we build access without relying on our traditional means of access? And to have an evaluation plan in place that can look to see the feasibility, overcome any barriers, and to see if we can't get more people into care. Absolutely. You know, we, we need to start establishing the lessons that we are learning from the last six months using the data that we have in order to better prepare for the next six months because even as we get spikes and valleys with this virus it is going to be quite a while before we are completely opened back up for business and when we do business will probably not be the same as it is as it was prior to this 
to this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So what can we learn from the data that we have now that can help us prepare and better engage and provide access to the most vulnerable populations that we aren't seeing in our system now? Who is telehealth working for? Who's not coming in? Who's not getting access online? What types of diagnoses, what types of systematologies, what types of social determinants of health are we seeing that we need to be influencing in order to, to start reducing some of these behavioral health issues and crises that we're seeing across the country? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that actually uh, brings me to what I'll call the concluding question of this podcast. You alluded to this before, Dr. Bose. Systems of care. What, what have we learned about advancing promising practice and models of care and how to fit community needs and special populations? Well, I think the big takeaway here is that the research literature tells us that large scale social change comes from better cross sector coordination rather than from the isolated intervention of individual organizations. Mm. There, there are numerous examples that suggest that substantially greater progress can be made in alleviating many of our most serious and complex social problems that we're facing now. If not only nonprofits, but governments, businesses, and the public were all brought together around a common agenda to create what we call collective impact. It doesn't happen often, not because it's impossible, but because it's so rarely attempted. We're jaded in that we think that we can't change multiple systems simultaneously around a problem, but we are beginning to see more and more examples that that happens. Um, part of this is because again, through our history, behavioral health providers, nonprofit organizations are used to focusing on their own independent action as the primary, primary vehicle for changing something. And so as a result, what we tend to do is we take the, the, our own action, providing some sort of evidence-based treatment or some sort of service to individuals that we deem need the service. So then if it doesn't work, oftentimes we, try, we blame the individual that they didn't do something right, rather than looking at the influence and the confluence of all of these other factors of, of a community and all of these social determinants of health. You know, I, to expand on that a little bit more, the healthcare sector, the nonprofit sector most frequently operate under an approach that, that we often call isolated impact. It's an approach that's oriented toward finding a solution embodied within a single organization, combined with the hope that the most effective organizations will grow or replicate to extend their impact more widely. We see this in grant applications all the time, right. where people talk about a community need, and then it gets down to, I'm going to provide substance abuse treatment services to 50 people. Uh, and think that that is going to bring about a larger change in the community. While it's very beneficial for the individuals receiving treatment, the community impact is really limited because these individuals are going back into a community with all of these uh, uh, negative determinants of healthcare outcomes. So um, what we need to do now is to start looking for effective interventions that cross these that cross all of these systems 
Um, Stan there's an organization, the Stanford Innovation Review. They tell us that as a result of having this isolated impact approach, nearly 1.4 million nonprofits try to invent independent solutions to major social problems right. off that, uh, that they're working at odds with, other, with, with each other and also exponentially increasing the perceived resources required to make meaningful progress. Right. Now, this is what we've been doing forever. And while there is little evidence that isolated initiatives are the best way to solve social problems, in today's complex world with this pandemic, we continue to do it. And we need to understand that no single organization is responsible for any major social problem and no single organization can cure it. So with respect to COVID-19, we need to stop relying on the isolated impact of individual organizations um, and the isolation of the nonprofit sector from the commercial sector mm -hmm. and look at these as an interplay between government and commercial activities and not only from the behavioral or social sector organizations. If we could do cross-sector planning and come up with consensus building on what the problems and what the drivers of the problems are across the systems to come up with innovative ways to meet these crises at every at every level within these systems we will have much better outcomes absolutely if we can shift from isolated impact to a collective community impact it's i'm not talking about just encouraging more collaboration and public-private partnership. That is not what I'm doing. Traditionally, that has meant having memorandums of understanding where one organization will make referrals to another or one organization will provide something to another. It's not a collective uh, systemic approach to social impact that would focus on the relationships between organizations and the progress towards shared objectives. What are the barriers of those organizations, of those systems working together? And how can we knock down those barriers? It requires the creation of a new set of leadership organizations that have the skills and the resources to assemble and coordinate specific elements necessary for collective action to succeed. So by becoming, not just being in a community, but really becoming part of that community by using community health workers and systems of change to bring about a collective response to the, all of the issues that this pandemic is raising. Then we can begin to help communities come out of this as a community instead of as isolated individuals. Awesome. Dr. Bose, I think you were great in covering integrated care and, it, and its impact, especially during the pandemic. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. All right. So, uh, yeah, that concludes today's SAE Cares podcast. By the way, if you haven't signed up yet and want to receive our content and updates in the field, the sign-up link will be in the description so that you can get our issue briefs, podcasts, resources, and more straight to your email inbox.
And uh, stay tuned for our next podcast, which will also dive into the uh, white paper details and the different topics that we discuss. Till then, take care. Mm-hmm.